Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. He served from March 1861 until his assassination in April 1865. And he led the United States through its greatest constitutional, military and moral crisis, namely the American Civil War. And through that time, Lincoln preserved the Union. He abolished slavery, strengthened the national government and modernized the economy. Now that is an introduction. That is someone who knew a lot about power and how and when to use it. And Lincoln said... He said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you really want to test a man's character, give him power. Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you really want to test a man's character, give him power. 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 Power is something that many want more of, and yet something that many don't know how to handle. It can cause the defining moments in in a person's life, for good or for ill. See, power can destroy as much as it can create. It can bring down as much as it can build up. It can control as much as it can release. Power is definitely something that we should know more about because it affects all of our lives. And in in this series, life is not a dress rehearsal. We're looking at the life of Joseph, and he was someone who faced adversity and we stood it but power that real test of character that was coming and this week week four that is what we're looking at how we're going to do this is to get back into the story the story of joseph and see the the time of of preparation that takes us up to his defining moment and then we're going to ground that we're going to ground that in our everyday reality because we all have power and finally we get the the long outworking and how I believe that God sees power we join the story in Genesis chapter 40 that's Genesis chapter 40 but to fully understand the time of of preparation we need to go back back to the start to get an overview Joseph is introduced as a a young man of 17 who was looking after the flocks of sheep with his brothers. And we're told that his father, Jacob, favoured Joseph the most. Because of this, Jacob gave Joseph a richly ornamental robe. It caused him to, to stand out. And when Joseph told his brothers and then his father about two dreams that he had had, Dreams that suggested that they would be bowing down to him. The brothers had had enough. And they waited for their opportunity to do away with Joseph. And one day, out in the fields, it came. The one brother, Reuben, steered them away from actually killing him. Instead, Joseph was thrown down into an empty cistern. And then later, he was lifted out and sold to passing traders who took him down to Egypt and sold him on as a slave to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. To Joseph's family, he was dead. And he found himself in a foreign land with with foreign gods. But it went well for a time until Potiphar's wife started making her advances. And though Joseph resisted, it became more and more provocative 
until the day came that Joseph, to remain true to to himself, he had to, to flee from the house and left her, Potiphar's wife, with his cloak in her hand. She claimed that he had raped her, which couldn't have been further from the truth. And Joseph was put in prison. Life for Joseph certainly wasn't playing out the way that he had dreamed it would. He didn't deserve to be there. He hadn't deserved any of this. Sure, he'd been a a little proud, a, a little arrogant with his brothers and with his parents as a teenager. Nothing unusual there. Being left to die. Being sold as a slave. Being wrongly convicted of rape. That was too much. That was adversity. That was reason to to give up, reason to to get bitter. But Joseph stood the test. More than that, he shined. And in the last verse of Genesis chapter 39, it says, the warder, that was the, the prison warder where Joseph was held. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Joseph was in prison for anything up to 13 years. And you have to ask the question, and no doubt this was the question that, that Joseph asked over and over again. He probably shouted at it, God, I know I would have done if I was Joseph. And the question, the question, God, God, what are you doing? What on earth are you doing? And the only answer, the one that Joseph must have held on to through those long years is that God was building something inside of Joseph. He was getting him ready for what was about to happen. Whenever you read the the Bible, it so helps and it, it brings it alive when you see how your own life Your own story connects with what you're reading. I haven't been to prison. I don't think that comes as a surprise to you. And I'm not planning on it in the future. Maybe the the closest that I came was working at a solicitor's. And apologies to solicitors here. It may be stretching it. I normally do for a good story. God knew. God knew what he was doing. And I have to thank John Cockling for seeing that and and making it happen. But to me, looking back on it, it was one of those times in in my life where I was asking the question, God, God, what on earth are you doing? I just finished studying, three years doing theology. And I was keen to get out there to, to make an impact. I don't know, lead a church, start a ministry, tell someone about Jesus. I'd spent a long time reading and and studying and behind a computer, but I needed to earn money. And John is a solicitor, and he suggested this filing job. A lot of their work was was house sales and and purchases, and each one was placed in in an envelope folder, which were arranged in alphabetical order from A to Z. And they were stored in the loft and and in the the cellar. And it had been like this since the 1920s, and the alphabet had been restarted four or five times. And there were thousands, thousands of these envelope folders. I can picture it clearly now. The place where they wanted to be was to have each of these folders given a number and then the details recorded on a spreadsheet. 
It meant fetching the, the files, climbing up in the loft and then down into the cellar, shaking off the dust and the cobwebs, dealing with the mildew, then getting in front of a computer and inputting the details. It was monotonous. It was mind-numbing. It was lonely. And I remember going home at the end of the day and just feeling empty. <laughs> probably, probably a lot of us could look back on experiences like that. It could be what is happening in your life right now. And for me, it seemed endless, almost pointless, with a view to where I wanted to be. But if you bring God into it, which I had to do time and time again, because to be honest, I kept losing sight of him, then he will build something inside of you. And it will become, it will become about what God is going to do next, no matter how long the waiting and through that time and others, I've come to learn four things about God. Firstly, God does some of his best work in our lives slowly. Slowly. It doesn't happen overnight. There are lessons that take a, a long time to learn. And we may fail lots of times at them. But if our desire is for God's outcome, then he won't let us down. Secondly, God does some of his best work behind closed doors where no one else sees what you are going through it's between you and God that is where the, the wrestling goes on which makes us strong in our faith thirdly some of God's best work only makes sense when we look at it in the rear view mirror because at the time it was painful or frustrating or we didn't understand why God was allowing this to happen and the final thing is that all along Maybe the primary work of God, the primary work that we have to keep coming back to time and time again in all of our lives is dealing with pride. Dealing with pride. Knowing that power so often goes to our heads. I read it recently in, in researching this that all who God uses greatly are first hidden in the secret of his presence. And that was where Joseph was, hidden in an Egyptian prison. Then at the start of chapter 40, two more characters stepped into Joseph's life. And they were crucial with what happened next. The chief cupbearer and the chief baker of the, the king of Egypt had offended their master and they were imprisoned with Joseph. To cut chapter 40 short, they both had dreams that Joseph, with God's help, was able to interpret. The one with a, with a good outcome where the cupbearer returned to his duties, but the other less so, where the baker was hanged. And as, <laughs> I prefer the first dream, to be honest, an interpretation. And as a, a parting conversation, Joseph asked them, he asked them to remember him, if ever a dream interpretation was needed. Now my wife, Rach, she will tell you that I have a bad memory. I think maybe it is a, a man thing that we're not too good at passing on information. But in this case, with the cupbearer, it was two years, which makes me look good. And at the start, at the start of chapter 41, Pharaoh had a dream. And the chief cupbearer suddenly remembered Joseph and how he had interpreted their dreams, which had turned out exactly as he'd said. Pharaoh sent for Joseph and immediately 
You get the contrast from the, the darkness of the, of the dungeon to the, the glorious splendor of Pharaoh's palace. And this now was Joseph's defining moment. After all, he was a, a prisoner, a, a Hebrew from the, the back of beyond. And, and now he stood face to face with the, the most important, the most powerful person on the planet. Only God could have scripted this. And Joseph would rise or fall. He would live or die in this moment. And in Genesis 41, verses 14 to 15, we are front row for the action, it says. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I am certain that for Joseph, being dead to his family, being sold as a slave, being wrongly convicted of rape, being in prison, being forgotten through those long years of adversity, God had been getting him ready for this moment. And the first clue comes when Joseph says, I cannot do it, but God will. That realisation, that humility, that bravery to say to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, to say to him, not you, not me, but God can. Pharaoh goes on to tell Joseph his dream about seven fat and sleek cows and seven scrawny and lean cows. And then another dream about seven full ears of corn and seven withered and scorched ears of corn. And Joseph gives the interpretation. But again, it wasn't him. It was God. Seven years of abundance and plenty were, were coming to Egypt. The fat cows, the, the full ears of corn. And then seven years of famine were coming. The scrawny cows, the, the withered corn. And Joseph now, empowered by God, told Pharaoh how he must approach this, this coming crisis. And Pharaoh was convinced this had to be done. But who was the person? And again, we're front row in verses 37 to 40. It says, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom the Spirit of God is? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of the, the whole land. He took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck, had him ride in his chariot with blacked out windows as his second in command. Joseph now had all the bling. He had the wheels. Pharaoh even gave him an A-list Egyptian celebrity as his wife. To use a modern translation, he was the man. This was the defining moment. This was when adversity finished and power started. What is the, the true test of the man's character? And with the, the remainder of the talk, I want to really look at power and how I believe that, that God sees it. And 
you may, you may, you may be hearing all of this and thinking, what power do I have? I mean, Joseph, he became second only to Pharaoh. How can we relate to that? And maybe that is a little off the spectrum. But we do have power. We do have power. Whether that is a a child who thinks he's Darth Vader or a dad with his key fob, we all have power. And I want to quickly run through nine different aspects of power where I think we can all say, we can all say, yes, you're right, we have power over that. And all of these, all of these can be seen in a, in a positive, a, a healthy sense, or in a negative and unhealthy, damaging sense. We have power. We have power over our impulses and, and desires. We can be in control of them. We can choose to, to lean into them and experience them, let them direct us, or we can lean away from them, not let them take over. We have power to choose our response to a, to a situation. If something happens, a conversation, something is said against us, we can get all worked up and say something hurtful or even take it behind people's backs to, to bring someone down. We have power to say what we really think and that's about living an authentic life where our actions and our, our words and who we are when everyone is looking is who we are when no one is looking. We have power to, to challenge and to, and to disagree, to, to step in and make a point if something is not truthful or someone is getting out of order. We have power to, to make a stand for something. There are issues, crisis needs that touch all of our lives. We may see it in the news, hear about it through conversation, and our heart goes out. We want to do something about it. And we all have the power to, to make a stand, to, to bring it to light, to actively work, to, to change, to right or wrong, to bring justice and healing and forgiveness. We have that power. We have power to take responsibility for ourselves. And just a, a comment here, we, we live so much in a, in a blame culture. And that may sometimes be the case. Something happened, it was someone else's fault. But sometimes that isn't the case. Actually, it was our own faults. We went in with wrong motives, a lack of thought, a failure to, to want to deal with our own issues. Sometimes we do need to blame ourselves and then work to deal with it. We have that power. We have power of attraction, particularly sexual attraction. And Leon talked on temptation last Sunday. I strongly recommend that we've all listened to that and we can download it on the podcast if we need to. We also have physical power to exert force. And with that, we may think of exercise and weight training and bench pressing. And apparently Simon, Simon Woodward, you mostly know who he is. His highest bench press is 135 kilograms. Sounds impressive. Not sure how much it is. Probably 135 bags of sugar, which would seriously rot your teeth. But even here... Even here, with exerting force, it can be the the gentlest of touches that communicates the most powerful of emotions. We have power to, to build up or to pull down through the words that we use, and that is massive, especially in the relationships that we have here. Now, you're not going to remember all nine. They may not all be relevant to, to where you're at, but there may be one. 
One for each of us where we think, I feel moved there. Is it that power over our impulses and desires where they keep getting the better of us and we're into something unhealthy as a, as a result? Is it how we respond in a, a situation where we know we've got too short to fuse? Could it be the power to, to make a stand, you feel moved to commit to a cause? Or is it taking responsibility for ourselves? Too quick to blame someone else? Or maybe our words. We know that we could just be so much more encouraging. We can see all the negatives, but never think to, to speak something positive into someone else's life. We all have power. There is no denying that. And having got that, the, the question that I felt challenged on was when, when am I at my most powerful? When am I most open to doing good or harm? And the answer and isn't final. It's just trying to work this out. Keep in mind this upside down and inside out approach that Jesus so often teaches. And it isn't the obvious one. Say when I'm leading, when I'm in front of people asking and telling and, and encouraging people to, to do something where there is a lot about the position of, of authority that we may hold. But I don't think it is then. That isn't when we're most powerful. And it isn't when I'm at home with my children where I'm older, stronger, more sensible most of the time. Or with Rach where I don't even have the power over the TV remote. It isn't there. <laughs> life, life is not a dress rehearsal. But a lot does go on behind the scenes. When the audience isn't watching, who we can play up to. See, there are a lot of expectations placed on all of us, how we should behave when people are around us. Chances are we do our best to fulfill those expectations. And for me, I am at my most powerful. We are at our most powerful when we are alone. It is in those times when we decide who we are becoming. It is in those times when we decide what we hold true and what our values are. It's in those times where we can deal with our faults and our, our failings, our character issues. And it is in those times alone when I, when we become most vulnerable to damaging ourselves. It's also in those times alone when we can be most connected to our God. And we can pray. We can be involved in the most supernatural of activities. Matthew 6, when Jesus talked about prayer, and this isn't to reduce the, the value of praying together, but to highlight the power of praying alone. He says this, he says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. It is when we're alone. That is where godly power and influence is grown in us. And then the outworking of that is seen in the upfront when we're on our stage, whatever or wherever that is. And power. The power that comes from God, whether that is directly or more often through others. I believe that power is most powerful, not when it is taken, not when it is held onto, but when it is given. And there's a, there's a word here that I want to rediscover just because it helped me to to understand this it's an old word 
one not used. And please, give it a try in your next conversation. Try and get it in there. The word is bestowed. Bestowed. And it has the sense of something important, something of value being placed into someone else's hands. And that person who, who receives it isn't trying to claim it for themselves. It is bestowed to them out of respect for who they are and for the good and godly influence that they are carrying. Power is given by mutual agreement. There is no power play, only trust and respect. And for me, that is the most powerful power to be carrying and to be releasing others to have. And for Joseph, as we head through the, the long out working, that was the relationship that he had with the Pharaoh. Through the seven years of, of plenty, Joseph was true to his word. Quietly, efficiently, he stockpiled. He actually rose further in respect of the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. More and more power was bestowed on him. And it's important to see that this wasn't a, a culture, the Egyptian culture, where it was easy for Joseph to, to remain pure, to be committed to his gods. And power would have meant access to everything. His character would have been tested time and time again. And you may be here and you carry responsibility. You have power. And I'm not only talking about church. I'm talking about all different aspects of, of life and, and work. Power may go with the position that you have. And I want to say, be encouraged. I know it isn't easy. You pay a price. Joseph did to become powerful. And then when you're there, you can pay an even greater price, living your life in front of people. We've got to keep in mind, Joseph was only 30 when he became powerful. He was 110 years old when he died. He lived a long time in the spotlight. And with authority comes the need for accountability. And with popularity comes the need for humility. And with prosperity comes the need for integrity. And the final question, the final question that I want to ask here is who is on the throne in your life? Now, if you're not a Christian, that may not work for you. So put it in a different way. Who is at the center of your life? Because when it comes to power, that is an essential question to ask. Power is powerful. Sounds obvious, doesn't it? But power has the power to bring death as much as it does to bring life. And if Joseph was asked that question about who was on the throne in his life, if he was asked why, why the immense power that he held brought life to, to literally millions of people, the answer would be God. God, because when it came to Joseph's life, the preparation, the defining moment, the long outworking, God was on the throne. God was at the center of Joseph's life. And for us now in answering that same question, what would we say? Who is on the throne? Who is at the, the center of our lives? And as I finish, I'd like us to respond to this. You may be here and you wouldn't call yourself a, a Christian. And Jesus, well, you're not too sure about him. I'm going to read some words to all of us out of the Bible and they describe him. They describe Jesus. They describe the journey that he went on to reach us. And it may be for the first time, this starts to make 
sense to you. Our God, our God who gave everything to be in relationship with us. And no one, no one can argue with what we know of Jesus and how he carried power. Or you may be here and you've committed your life to following Jesus. These words may be familiar to you. Allow them to move you again. See, we often overestimate, come to overestimate our power. And then we completely underestimate God's power through us. And here in this, this, these words will cause us to see it again as we should. This supreme power and supreme humility captured in the person of Jesus, who is the, the Son of God. So let's all close our eyes. Close our eyes so that we can really center ourselves and our lives. We can know who really is on the throne. In Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, it says this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, I pray that for each of us, we would have a picture of the journey that you went on to reach us. Humbling yourself, becoming a servant, becoming human, to reach us. And then, Lord, you rose. You rose to life and were exalted. And now, God, you are in heaven. Lord, may we have a picture of who you are in our lives. And Lord, may we open the way for you to be at the center for you to sit on that throne and to be our Lord and Saviour in our lives. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.